0: to start it off I just want to tee up for both of you Uh, we'll start with Tim Uh, can you just talk to us about how you got started in this area uh, what sort of work you're doing what your general clientele looks like uh, and then we'll go on to you Nick
1: sure happy to and and thanks for having me today it's a pleasure to be here Um, I've got into uh, as was mentioned at the beginning have been working in privacy and cybersecurity issues really my entire legal career since about 2001. It was kind of early into the field, which has now sort of blossomed into its own uh, practice area. It really wasn't as much so when I first started practicing. Um, and the the thing about privacy and cyber is it really touches any business you can think of. Any company you talk to has data, even companies that aren't very consumer-focused, If you even employee data only, if there's, there's always data and there's always concerns around protecting it and how it's used. And uh, based on uh, being at Hogan, uh, which I joined in 2009, and had been at a couple of other firms prior to that, uh, we, we do have a fairly large automotive practice as well, an automotive regulatory practice, and um, sort of connecting with the people In that practice, when I joined, I started working with uh, automotive companies on some of these issues, and I would say it really took off around 2013 when the auto industry was getting um, uh, a lot of legislative proposals were being introduced in states and at the federal level, which were focused on privacy in the vehicle. And the um, auto industry thought they needed to get a little bit out ahead of some of these issues. Um, So they developed a set of self-regulatory principles that um, I was involved in advising the auto industry on the creation of. And so those were actually passed in 2014 through um, uh, basically every OEM, every automotive company who produces cars for the US market signed on to these principles in 2014. uh, with the exception of Tesla, um, but other than that, um, these are self-regulatory principles that, that these companies, uh, you know, commit to abide by, and I can talk about those a little bit more as we go forward, um, but that's sort of how I've kind of got into that space, and then I've been advising companies in this area from that time uh, forward. Um, and obviously, the issues aren't going away. There's so much data being collected, even in today's world. Before we even talk about fully autonomous vehicles, um, just there's a lot of connectivity in vehicles, a lot of data being collected, and so these issues resonate with the public. Uh, I think I've heard um, a colleague sent me a note this morning as I got here. I noticed that they said there had been a uh, episode on or a show on uh, CBS this morning today talked about connected vehicles
2: and a t- and privacy issues thank you guys for the uh opportunity to be here as well um this is a great event and we're really excited about getting to participate um so for for me i guess um just to give you a quick sort of background on on my experience i've been with uber for a little over four years now um and have been pretty focused on the sort of the government relations public affairs side of uh, I guess you could say disruptive technology coming in and sort of uh, changing existing inf- uh, industries and and reshaping. I, I really in how we think about it as a company, anyways, reshaping how people um, are able to get around. Um, I was involved with some of the earlier laws that um, tried to first capture how to de- describe and and regulate this new industry, um, which has since you know taken off and become this kind of a global phenomenon. Um, and, and, you know, when I first came on, we were a black car service, uh, which some of you guys might be familiar with. But then the the conversation quickly shifted and it switched to this one of like, well, what's preventing anybody who has a driver's license and is you know, safe in the eyes of public officials from being able to provide these services? And that became this really interesting conversation that we had uh, first with a bunch of cities, then with a bunch of states. And we learned a lot as a company really about um, what it means to provide services to people, and and how complicated it can be to come up with good public policy that can ensure that you're protecting, uh, you know, consumer privacy, that you're protecting the public, that you have basic, uh, you know, regulations in, in place, um, but that you, it's still flexible enough for companies to continue to evolve and innovate and constantly produce. Uh, Better service, and what's interesting now is we um, we're moving beyond that even I think, and we have uh, we have new leadership and a new CEO. Or I guess it's, he's not really new now; he's been there for about a year. But he's articulating this vision for our company that goes far beyond just uh, this kind of taxi versus ride sharing debate, and it's really focused about how can we be a platform for people to access all kinds of transportation infrastructure in in through different modes, right? And so. Our our ride sharing business helps people access the the public roads infrastructure, even if they don't have a car of their own. What we want to do is we want to give people lots of different options for how they can move around on the roads, and so we recently bought a company called Jump Bike, which is a pedal assist bike company, um, and is now pivoting also into scooters, Um, and so these dockless scooters and bikes, probably a lot of you have ridden them or seen them. Uh, that's an ongoing policy conversation that we're having with a lot of cities. You know, How do you set up a regulatory framework that works uh, for those industries as well and addresses the same kind of public policy concerns that are out there? Um, and then we're, we're thinking too about, you know how can we compete with individual car ownership and car use? Because that's really what drives a lot of our transportation difficulties, especially in really dense urban environments. Um, there's so many people that for uh, want a better options because they don't live next to public transit, uh, because it's not reliable, or whatever, feel compelled to buy themselves a car. And once they bought it, then they use it. And we build wider and wider roads and we induce more demand. And um, you end up with, with cities that dedicate tons of space to actually storing vehicles. So we, we have this big policy vision and business vision where we're using technology to bring a whole host of, of alternatives really to people's fingertips as a way to try to get them out of their cars. That's where we see the biggest opportunity for growth for us. We're thinking broadly too about, you know how can we go beyond the road infrastructure and also tap into public uh, uh, transit infrastructure? So if you could mobily pay for tickets and have journey planning based in your app, presumably it would help a lot of people get over the hump because maybe they don't know the bus routes maybe they don't know uh, you know the the times when the trains are gonna come maybe there are some problems with reliability but ultimately like that reliability issue improves as you get more and more people using the service um, because it has to and so that's kind of where we would like to see ourselves go is pull together a whole bunch of different uh, alternative modes into our app as uh, as a way to really get people comfortable with the idea of leaving their car at home or not even buying one in the first place and so this conversation about uh, autonomous vehicles is really um interesting of course too because with a platform to give people access to a lot of different modes and with oems building these vehicles that can no longer be driven by humans and and with the huge potential that um that avs offer societally to help Uh, reduce, you know, uh, deaths and injuries from from car crashes, it's a major opportunity for us and we think that um, we have this platform that will really help uh, people access this without having to go out and buy it themselves, um, repeating sort of the same patterns from before. If we can give people access to this, they can use it at a much lower uh, price point. And, um, and we can hopefully start to really change how cities are structured, how they think about planning, and how people get around. And so that's kind of like our broad vision as a company. And I guess our role, the, my team's role, is really to be that interface with local governments and help them think through, well, what are the policy implications of this given law that you're going to propose, how is that going to achieve what you want to achieve, and also hopefully allow companies to still compete um, and provide services within that regulatory framework? And so happy to talk a little bit about our experience uh, looking through that lens uh, of the law.
0: Thank you, guys. Uh, I'm going to just offer up a couple questions to them, but they've both said that they're comfortable with people interrupting with questions, so if at any point something is burning in your mind just throw your hand up and we'll include you um to start it off let's talk about data and cybersecurity and, and privacy issues um with the use of autonomous vehicles on a broader scale the use of your app even broader for mobility uh, uh purposes there's going to be a lot of hacking and cybersecurity issues that come up uh, and with the creation of data that's going to follow the more widespread use of autonomous vehicles you can see a lot of privacy concerns too i mean these are deep uh, insights that people can you know, get into our lives with access to data following our use of autonomous vehicles. Can you talk about what your primary constituency is most concerned about and what you are most concerned about? So clients or Uber and uh, regulators and elected officials and- Tim, you can
1: start us off. Sure. Uh, I'm happy to talk about that. And again, this goes to what I was talking about earlier with the development of the privacy principles. So it was largely the OEMs, um, traditional OEMs that I was working with at the time, um, who were, um, again, sort of surprised that they were being, uh, uh, I don't want to say attacked, but there was a lot of pressure on them on the privacy front. And these are... uh, Manufacturers who historically really hadn't focused that much on privacy—they really were in the business of building cars—but with the technology evolving, the car became more like the, you know, a mobile smartphone. With and now today's cars, even before we get into the autonomous world, we're talking about 100 million lines of code in a typical sort of new connected car. Um, so there's a lot of data that's being collected even today. Um, and they wanted to get out in front of this issue and say, look, we're, we're, we want to have the trust of the public, and we're willing to make certain firm commitments about how we handle information and the way we go about privacy concerns. So these privacy principles that they developed were focused very much on the fair information practice principles, which undergird a lot of privacy laws that have developed globally around the world, strong emphasis on notice and transparency, um, and, and giving choices as appropriate and and protecting the information and using the information uh, Contextually so that it sort of fits the context in which the person is interacting with with the vehicle um, and, and yet at the same time There's a lot of benefits that come with the data that's being collected through the OEMs and there, there really was the desire to have a balance to um, between the data use and the data collection and so, uh, what they recognized was that there are basically three categories of information that raise the most privacy concerns among uh, drivers and users, and that is the driver behavior information. So you know, if you're a frequent speeder or you, you hard brake and that's something your insurance company would want to know about because they could then use that to raise your rates. Um, the, the automobile companies made a firm commitment to treat that as sensitive information from their perspective. The same with geolocation information, obviously the specific places that you drive your vehicle on the weekend, you know, late at night might be something you wouldn't want certain people to know about. So that certainly raises some privacy concerns. Um, And then biometric information as well. So um, even when we were developing these, there weren't a lot of biometrics in sort of the general cars being rolled out at the time, but there was a recognition that more and more frequently biometric information would be used for various purposes. So if you think about even for uh, for safety purposes, uh, uh, the biometrics, you can have uh, something, a sensor in the car that can monitor your your sort of eye Eye, uh, movements such that they can detect if you're drowsy and give you an alert to wake you up so that there's a lot of safety issues there but at the same time it's collecting certain information from or you could even the way you unlock your your cell phone with your thumbprint you could use that to open the car and start the car and those are the types of things that are, are being rolled out so those three areas were uh, identified by the auto industry as things of particular concern and they made some specific commitments with that uh, with that type of information specifically, that they would not individually as auto companies use that information for their even their own marketing purposes without getting affirmative consent from users, and that they wouldn't share that information with unaffiliated third parties without getting, um, for their own use, without getting um, affirmative consent from the users. So, Again, if you think of the insurance example, which everyone seems to be the most concerned about um, that inform- the auto company can't just sell that information to the insurance company without getting your affirmative consent before doing so. There were also some commitments about requiring that the government obtain a, a warrant before they would access geolocation information, which is something that they um, are frequently interested in so those those were the sort of the core commitments um, they they also we're very much cognizant of and I think what what everyone needs I think recognize when thinking about the privacy concerns is that there are a lot of benefits that come with connected vehicles and again this is even before we get to autonomous even in today's world um, we're thinking about things like safety the safety um, components are incredible uh, what's occurring now with connected vehicles where you have emergency crash alerts going to uh, emergency responders immediately um, you've got um, the potential to um, you have certain services in vehicles now where you have vehicle slowdown services so if your car's stolen you can uh, the auto company can you can alert the auto company with your app and they can remotely slow down the vehicle so such that the the bad guy can be caught um, there's all kinds of efficiency being built into the vehicles with vehicle diagnostics at much more um, advanced you know it's not just the traditional Oil light that you used to have but now there's a lot of very uh, specific um, information that can be conveyed to both you or to your auto mechanic about what sort of issues are going on with your car um, and then the driver assist technologies which are um, I, I don't know if we, we need to go into the great there's different levels of autonomous vehicles so even before you get to fully autonomous there's semi autonomous and there's these different levels um, and some of the things that are rolling out now uh, being brought out by Mercedes and others are these driver assist issues where you sort of lane um, keeps you in the right lane and and those does various things Um, all of those things use data and and um, it's important to track information based on that and then you have all kinds of communications offerings now with Wi-Fi hotspots in the vehicles um, not just through your phone but through the vehicle itself you've got um, automakers who are rolling out um, sort of their own app shops right there in the head unit of the vehicle. So all of these things are tremendous benefits for consumers, and and I think that needs to be something that people are cognizant of when they're calling for new regulation or new laws about the the privacy of of people's information. in the vehicles, and as we move forward, you know you're going to have vehicle-to-vehicle communications, vehicle-to-infrastructure communications, so that everyone again these a lot these help with safety issues and reduce crashes, and they also um, help with fuel efficiency and uh, sort of the efficiency of the the network overall in terms of how vehicles traverse through the um, through the. Uh, uh, highways and and, and and streets. So all of these things, I think, need to be balanced and are important considerations overall.
2: Yeah. I, I can jump into just, um, you know, the AV piece is really, it's interesting, right? Um, and, and when we think about cybersecurity, obviously, we're a tech company. So um, we have a lot of experience about uh, thinking about the the software piece and thinking about, you know, how do we Protect against these kinds of things. We we actually just recently released a safety report where we outline um, a lot of the uh, the ways we're thinking about cybersecurity, um, where we're we they're largely informed by the NHTSA um, recommendations, but also groups like SAE and ISO and um, and Auto Isaac and uh, and others. But um, but I think what's what what's really in and and, and so it it deals with a whole host of things right from from hardware to uh, security infrastructure and and all sorts of things but even if you take a step back to think about what um, what a lot of governments are are thinking about when it comes to to data there's an interesting question that's going on right now I think where in our experience um, AVs aside there's a ton of information uh, that's out there about people's movements you know, whether it's through ride sharing or dockless bikes and scooters. And there's a whole conversation going on right now across all these different cities and all these different jurisdictions where governments realize that there's a lot of really valuable information there that could be very useful for them for planning purposes. Um, And so they're curious about, you know, well, how many people are taking trips? Where are they going? How's this all working? And there's a whole host of of different things that they'd like to connect, collect. But at the same time, at least in, in our space, in the ride sharing space, and in the, the, the dockless mobility space, there isn't a standard right now um, for how to collect things, what to collect, how to protect privacy, um, whether data should be obfuscated, whether it should be real time. Um, and there isn't even necessarily consensus among different jurisdictions about what they need or why they need it. Um, and so as a private company, it becomes very challenging. We operate in over 600 uh, different cities. And if every single city has a different uh, request for us, like that basically shifts our business from being able to help people get access to transportation to becoming a data provider. Um, and, and that's not really what we're set up to do. And so there's this really interesting conversation that's going on across a ton of different places where where folks are trying to figure out, okay well what do we need? What is the level of, of privacy? Uh, build-ins that we need to have to try to protect people's uh, pii because you know it's very easy to de-anonymize uh, people's uh, individual trip records and then figure out you know where that they where where they've been traveling to where they worship all kinds of things that can potentially be really sensitive um, and so that's something that we as a company are trying to to make sure is factored into a lot of these uh these requests for data because it's not an impossible problem to solve but um but we think it's really important that you focus on you know protecting people's sensitive information that they don't want to have shared while still helping the jurisdictions we operate in make better informed decisions about transportation planning and things like that so before you even get to the av space uh there's some really complex data questions that i think are are still pretty early on um, in terms of, uh, of of trying to get to a consensus about about what should be shared and how it should be shared, and I think this is going to be a uh, a really um, complex and ongoing conversation. That's yeah,
1: gonna yeah, I, and I agree. And the other thing is, um, uh, you know, some people don't mind. So, so a lot of consumer advocates will be very upset if the people's data is being used to market to them. But some people don't mind that, and actually would like to have the convenience of they're driving down a particular road that they've not been down before and they get a coupon pop up for the mm-hmm. Starbucks because they love Starbucks and that might be useful for people. So sometimes there's, there's again, the sort of the need to balance the different considerations. Mm-hmm. And as long as, in my view, as long as companies are being very transparent about what they're doing and people mm-hmm. have appropriate choices, you know, there can be good uses of information to their benefit um, that might require sometimes keeping certain you know, developing profiles on people, again, tr- in a transparent way. Um, I didn't really touch upon the cyber issue in my earlier conversation. I just thought I'd mention that a little bit. Um, that is something that obviously raises a tremendous concerns. Um, and, and there's basically two components to that when you talk about connected vehicles and then ultimately autonomous. Is um, First, there's, there's sort of your personal information and, and how that's protected. And there are expectations from the Federal Trade Commission, for example, under Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act, under its unfairness and deception authority, uh, that companies reasonably protect personal information. So in the uh, car space, they've indicated that they would be willing to jump in if, if car companies aren't appropriately protecting people's personal data the the other side flip side of of that is is not really the personal data but the operation of the vehicle and that's really a major cyber concern um, and it's a real safety issue so from the federal regulatory perspective NHTSA is the the federal regulator who's focused on safety in vehicles and they've taken the position that when it comes to car hacking that could disrupt the operation of a vehicle that's a safety issue and so they've Put out some guidance on what their expectations are um um, and and we've you know for a long time that was somewhat theoretical we didn't really see actual car hacking taking place and a lot of people think that that's not something that's uh, a good target because a lot of hackers are looking for the easy easy targets and vehicles on a one-off basis are a a lot harder to, to hack but we did a couple of years ago see um, some researchers uh, remotely controlled some Jeeps uh, that were on the, the the roads. And that prompted um, FCA, who uh, used to be Chrysler or owns Chrysler, um, engage in a recall of 1.4 million Jeeps to get this. this vulnerability that the hackers exposed um put in place so that has some pretty significant consequences um for oems if they're not appropriately protecting information and to to that point the uh, automakers have been very active in doing some of the things that um we, we just heard about So, um, the auto ISAC is the uh, information sharing analysis center. It's kind of built on the model that the financial institutions have had in place for a long time where they share threat information amongst one another so that, you know, each people aren't just sort of flying blind as to the threats that are out there and there's a lot of guidance with with NIST and ISO and some of these other standards Um, NHTSA has sort of endorsed NIST standards which are really focused on risk identification and developing the right internal programs to account for uh, uh, cyber risk as you're developing vehicles in the production cycle all the way through to to rolling them out to consumers Um, so I just want to touch on on those issues as well
0: kind of a peripheral topic, you both discussed the importance of balancing increased amount of data about personal behavior and operating vehicle has a lot of benefit even though there are some tangential concerns. Finding that balance is often going to fall on a a kind of a push and pull between your clients and your company and regulators on the other side. Can you speak to from where you sit, um, what's the ideal role of uh, federal regulators and local, state? Uh, regulators and elected officials. What should they be doing? What should they kind of keep their noses out of? Uh, And also, what does the dialogue look like between both of you and those regulatory bodies? Uh, And Nick, you can kick us off.
2: Sure. So um, I guess I would say, to answer this question, in our experience, um, we approach public policy from a lens of how can we provide a service that's valuable to customers, but also make sure that we're were ensuring that, you know, public safety concerns uh, are addressed in whatever the regulatory scheme is. And so, to use a really basic example, I mean, when we, one of the places where I've worked was in Boston, and the setup there was, under the, the traditional, there's something like 360 different municipalities in Massachusetts, and each one tended to have its own regulatory framework for taxis and you would try to request a taxi in Boston to go across the river to Cambridge and they would ask you where you're going, not let you in the car, say, where are you going? You say, I just wanna go across the river and then they drive away because they can't pick up on the other side of the river. And so obviously when you're designing a public policy uh, to to basically regulate something like that's a bad outcome. And, and if you're starting from scratch, you don't want those kinds of things to be the outcomes, because people obviously travel across those borders multiple times a day sometimes. Um, And so our orientation has always been, we're gonna have a conversation with you. You're the regulator. What are you trying to accomplish here with this given proposal? And how can we work within that objective that you have to help you satisfy that goal? While still not compromising, kind of the experience for the customer or a company's ability to provide a service at the end of the day, um, and and so our approach is that yes, there are very legitimate public policy concerns that need to be addressed, and that's the point of regulations. Um, but let's not let's not be dogmatic about how we arrive at that that proper solution let's make sure that at the end of the day this is de- this is describing uh, an industry that's actually workable and and ha- is sustainable over the long term so that's kind of like our 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 first you know our first line principles i think when it comes to engaging i don't know if you want to
1: sure yeah what well, i mean when i worked with the um, auto industry on developing the privacy principles we didn't just do those in a vacuum there was there was a lot of engagement with a lot of different stakeholders including uh, we vetted these with the Federal Trade Commission, with NHTSA, um with uh, a, a whole wide array of consumer advocates, including the ACLU, the Center for Democracy and Technology, and, and various other uh, entities, including um, visiting a number of uh, offices on the Hill just to sort of vet them. And, and some of these entities aren't necessarily weighing in to say, "Yes, we, you know, officially endorse these," but. They definitely appreciate sort of the interaction and, and the understanding the issues that are being dealt with and addressed. Um, and I think that's a very useful, constructive approach. And uh, we still see, uh, you know, the, it's an issue that uh, the FTC had, had a workshop on connected vehicles recently, I think last year. And, and they're very much engaged with these different issues. They want to get hear from different stakeholders, which I think is an appropriate approach. There is, I think, with autonomous in particular. There's definitely, um, as we move into that world, concern about having, you know, 50 different states develop 50 different sort of approaches to how they're going to regulate these issues. And there have been a couple federal bills that have made some progress, um, the AV START Act and the, the safety, uh, so what is it? The, um, Self-Drive Act, I think um, and, and some of those went pretty far and I think the one we thought was going to actually pass and it passed one of the Houses and then sort of stalled um, But some of those are were designed to streamline the regulatory process from a national policy perspective Which I think is important when we're talking about these technologies again um, You know, I obviously think states have an important role in in, in regulation and, and law, but you also, when you're sort of rolling out new technology, you can you can get into trouble if you have different entities sort of jumping in um, with with different approaches.
2: Just have a question. Obviously we've seen electorally speaking in this country, a lot of uh, back and forth between which party is controlling the British Congress, the White House, et cetera, on a thesis of there's economic distress in this country, people are displeased with how that's going. As autonomous vehicles kind of displace low-skill uh, laborers you know specifically people who are truck drivers and then also maybe longer term people who are currently self-paying their income being an uber or lyft driver do you guys foresee a role in policy ensuring that those people are not left behind by a more autonomous economy that prevents them from kind of easily transitioning to a new uh, job you wanted to take uh, yeah, this one? Yeah, yeah. don't you take <laughs> that one. <laughs> uh, this is, this is my so, so, well, a couple. Th- there's a couple things there. I think it's a, a really important conversation, and um, and it's one that our company is, is definitely leaning into. Um, the The trucking example is kind of an interesting one because there's actually um, like a, a demographic cliff that that industry is approaching where you can't they can't recruit enough drivers, and so there was a time where we were doing self-driving uh, trucking business. We're not anymore, but Uh, But the interesting thing about that is that for whoever cracks that that nut, it's going to be a really interesting potentially transformative thing for the industry because what you potentially could do there is have these really long and grueling shifts right, where you have a driver that clocks in, is incentivized to drive as quickly as they can to their destination, burning a lot of fuel and uh, and trying to get in under the wire before they have to clock out. suddenly having a much easier and and potentially even like enjoyable experience where they're on the road and the, the vehicle is self-driving for the majority of the trip but then the 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 human part of that work is all in the the first last mile piece kind of if you will of the loading and unloading and in um in navigating through you know more dense city environments and things like that so it, it's it's probably less of like an all or nothing kind of situation, and much more like a like a, a gradual change where it becomes more like flying a plane than than um, being totally displaced. Um, and and it's probably going to take a long time for a lot of these things to happen. Um, but it is an important conversation to to be had. And and. You know we have more people today than we've ever had in the world before and we have more jobs than we've ever had before but that doesn't mean that there haven't been these big periods in history of of you know economic dislocation and and, and pain and so i think as a company we're, we're really very much looking into you know um the the skills-based training question trying to figure out what is our role to play what's an appropriate thing to play and it touches on a lot of other you know like kind of like you 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 Indicated right, like there's this big meta narrative about the economy and what's happening, and urban versus rural, and all these different pieces. Um, but there are there are other parts of the economy too, where you know we see lots of questions up for debate about you know what is the role of private companies, what is the role of the public sector, you know from healthcare to to, to everything. And so you know I think it's just incumbent on companies that are in this space to to take these kinds of things very seriously and lean into those and make sure that they're part of the conversation and that they're, um, that they're trying to do the best by the people that, that, um, who rely on them. And so we have a giant network of folks that we help uh, you know, earn supplemental income. And we're doing a lot of things, uh, particularly outside the US, that we can't necessarily do in the U.S. that I think people would find really interesting like driver protection um, and but even like paternity maternity uh, payments to folks in some companies in some countries but we can't really do that here because you have this independent contractor versus employee all or nothing kind of thing and so maybe it's time for some more conversations along those lines about like how can people have more access to benefits but still have the flexibility which is the hugest thing that we hear from the people that partner with us on the on the driver's side is they love the flexibility because it's one of the few things where you can literally press a button start earning money cash out the same day like even hours later um, and then turn it off whenever you're done and so it's an interesting an interesting conversation and a lot of people will turn to us as a way to supplement their income for their existing jobs which haven't seen wage increases in a long time and so it's it's it's, it's we're definitely part of the economy we want to be part of those kinds of conversations but they're definitely important to us
1: yeah and the only thing I would add and, and this really isn't my area of practice but just artificial intelligence and robotics mm-hmm. in general not mm-hmm. just in the automotive and autonomy and mobility mm-hmm. space are you know having forcing some sweeping changes through, you know, you go to the fast food place in a couple of years and there may not be people mm-hmm. back there serving you. So I think that's, a, that's an important issue that I think affects a lot of areas of the co- economy
2: that people are struggling with. Yeah, definitely definitely not limited to, it'll be interesting to see where all of us are in, <laughs> <laughs> in a few years. Um,
3: Nick, you talked a lot about Uber as a disruptive innovator, and you also mentioned or alluded to uh, a future that involves Uber having a role in maybe public infrastructure in cities. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what the fully autonomous future looks like to Uber, and in particular, what role Uber has in rolling out the infrastructure that is going to be required for a fully autonomous urban space, particularly in line with Uber's um, loyalty to disruptive innovation. I'm curious whether Uber intends to piggyback uh, efforts by large telecommunications companies that are looking to roll out this infrastructure, or whether Uber will want to take a stance that will encourage innovative technologies uh, like star common networks and such
2: OK. I will do my best, but (laughs) I'm gonna, I'll probably answer your question by not directly answering all of those pieces because to be, to be totally honest, I'm not sure that we know. Um, there's a lot of this technology that hasn't been even invented yet. Um, and there's, there's the directionally, I think people feel like they increasingly know where we're going, but a lot of the things that you raised are big question marks. And so I, I would answer it by saying, first and foremost, one, I think we're, we view ourselves less as a disruptor now than we used to. And we're trying to be good partners with cities to help them think about how they use their infrastructure the most effectively. Um, and what we see is we, we operate in this space, right, where we're helping people access the public infrastructure, the public roads infrastructure. Um, it's helped a lot more people take trips than we were able to before. Uh, we're hoping that we can displace a lot of people that are driving in cars by themselves as you start to do that it helps cities start to think and so DC is a great example DC has looked at a couple specific areas in the city where they see a lot of traffic at particular times of the day and they noticed that there were a bunch of people like double parking um, in this late night area and they're like, why are people double parking? Oh, it's because there's nowhere for them to pull over. Why is there nowhere for them to pull over? They've got a bunch of cars that are, uh, you know, sitting outside these clubs at late night hours where there's not even like parking meters. So they're not getting any revenue and they're just basically like subsidizing 17 people to have their vehicles parked somewhere. So what if we eliminated that space and turned that into a pickup drop-off space? All of a sudden they're using data to make a much better decision about how to use their limited public infrastructure. Um, and and it's helping move people much more you know uh, efficiently through that through that kind of choke point that was created, so I think like you'll start to see a lot of things like that where cities take data um, that they're that they're getting from from companies like ours and from others and they start to be much more mindful about how they use their public infrastructure and. Um, You know, there's just some basic like, you know, a a car is never going to be able to move as many people as a bus versus like a a train or things like that. And so I think, I think it's really going to be, it's going to be highly dependent on your geography, uh, the way the the land use is all determined, um, what existing infrastructure exists to get people from A to B. And and what's going to be the most efficient way to do that in a way that people will actually choose it, as opposed to being like, you know, kind of forced to use something or left without other better alternatives. So I don't think that there's like,
3: I, I think it's a great
2: question, but I don't think that it's necessarily t- totally clear to us
4: at this just point. To follow up, yeah.
3: And, um, given the variations in place that you were just describing, and it sounds like Uber might be um, supportive of less of a centralized approach to seeing fully autonomous vehicles rolled out because of these unique characteristics of each
2: community? Is that something that you think? So historically, the way we tried to design our technology was to be able to operate anywhere, right? And just be able to function regardless of whether there was specific road infrastructure built out that had, you know, connectivity incorporated into it and things like that. And so basically the... The, the way we would talk about it at that point was like, if you, if you maintain basic good roads with, you know, striping and uh, lack of potholes and things like that, like technology should be able to drive on it. I think it'll be interesting because the, the model that we're pursuing, we're pursuing two different models. One, where we work with uh, OEMs and then we apply, you know, our own self-driving stack basically onto that vehicle and then deploy it on our platform. And then the other model is where we take OEM-created uh, you know, AV vehicles and we put them onto our platform. I don't know that it's, I, I think it'll be interesting to see how that technology starts to evolve um, and, and what kinds of environments the vehicles are better suited for. Um, and then I think that would probably inform our approach to cities and to states and to the federal government for like the infrastructure needs that, that people will have. Hopefully that answers your question.
1: Yeah, I'll just add one thing about the, uh, there, there could be some un- unforeseen circumstances that affect the rollout of some of these technologies. And this is not something I know of firsthand, but I heard this at another similar conference from a fellow panelist who was s- stating or suggesting that when it comes to the, the self-automated uh, trucks and the platooning idea where you're going to have a whole huge platoon of trucks uh, self-driving trucks sort of lined up going down the highway and they're very close together and that creates massive efficiencies from fuel economy et cetera. that the um, that he doesn't think that the highways were actually built to support that level of that amount of trucks driving through the highway at that close together speed so typically now you have trucks going over the, the and there's some spacing and the asphalt and concrete can sort of deal with that, and he thinks that might actually tear up the, the, the roads and not the roads won't support that type of activity. I don't know whether that's true or not, but it just sort of points to the fact that there could be all kinds of unforeseen issues that haven't been thought through.
0: To follow up on Carter's point, uh, there's so much conversation about the future of our cities. I mean, there's a professor here at the University of Virginia that wrote a book commenting on how our cities were built um, around the idea of personal ownership of vehicles. And you know, concerns about curb space, you know, mirror that exactly. There's also people who say autonomous vehicles are not gonna amend that issue and allow us to build parks, it's gonna increase the issue because you're gonna have personal ownership of these autonomous vehicles for the sake of convenience. And at the very least, a drastically increased use of vehicles because you can just call it on your phone. The barrier to entry is so much lower. Um, I want to follow up with you specifically, Tim, about connected vehicles. There's this idea of connected vehicle-to-vehicle technology, but also vehicle-to-infrastructure technology. So under the broad umbrella of what the future of our cities looks like, um, from where you're sitting and the clients you're working with and the technology you're dealing with, what does our future city look like and what hurdles do we have to kind of conquer to get there?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure I really know the answer to that, um, and Nick might even have better perspective on that. But um, uh, I mean, I've heard a lot of different things, and and um, you know where you where you mentioned that you would have personal ownership, and I think some of you maybe the trend will be where there's less and less personal ownership, um, and vehicle use is so inefficient. Where I've you know I've 95% of the time a vehicle's just sitting parked um, because you're either just driving at one place and going to work for eight hours and you go home and you're there for 12 hours. And so there's a lot of efficiencies to be gained from just having these fleets that are operating and, and picking people up. And if that's the way it goes, I think you will have dramatic changes in how in cities and how people live and how, they, um, how that affects the infrastructure and, and what people need to be close to. They may need not need to be close to the same things that they are now, including their jobs. Um, uh, but I don't know which way that's going to cut or how that's going to go, and I could see that going a few different directions. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have, might have a different perspective.
2: No, I, I I, Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's hard to, to predict these kinds of things. But Well, just, I was just, as we're sitting here, I mean, there's also, like, there's the American context where, you know you go out you buy a car you know as soon as you turn 16 or something like that or well you maybe don't buy one when you're 16 but uh you want to get your license as soon as you can and it's this symbol of freedom and status and all this other stuff um we're already seeing that's kind of changing uh with a lot of young people then you've got this this us well it's kind of a global phenomenon people moving to cities um where it's not really practical to have a car um, and so, I think that the, the personal car ownership thing might come from a little bit of like an American perspective um, on, on cars. I think if you look at like megacities around the world, the vast majority of the people don't own cars and, and probably will never need to. And so, I think it's, it's more a question of, okay, well, of the people that do own cars or have the ability to own cars, will they choose to? Or will it be less of an importance or a, a factor on congestion and things like that? Because the vast majority of people uh, are at such a different price point for their transportation that they 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 could never possibly afford to to own their own. And so I I think that that's going to be part of the the conversation too. And it'll probably be a little bit situational and and culturally specific. And and um, it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. I don't know if that's Yeah, I mean, I would, I would
1: think that the fleet model, where you have the circulating—that's what you always hear Mm about—where you just have self-driving cars, sort of in sort of coming from a central location and sort of circulating, (coughs) and then people just calling a car when they need it, and it's Mm -hmm. there in a couple minutes, being the predominant uh, approach. But I don't think you're going to. You know, anytime soon if you're talking about sort of average person in South Dakota probably doesn't want to give up their F-150 you know pickup truck or whatever so mm.
3: Charles, I have a question about the uh, torque impacts of uh, autonomous vehicles uh, you know autonomous cars are going to face the trolley problem every day where they have to balance safety of their own passengers versus other cars pedestrians you know we have juries to decide if a uh, human driver behaves reasonably but how do we decide if uh, AI behaved reasonably? And what role does the government have, regulators
2: have, in, in kind of uh, setting those algorithms
1: for how they make their decisions? Do you want to go? <laughs> 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 um, yeah, you know, liability is going to be a big issue. And um, I I've have, we, we do have, and I mentioned we have a large automotive group. And we have people in my firm who are working on some of these issues with liability and how that's going to shape out in the future. Um, with product liability for these types of technologies um, I don't it's not my area of expertise so I don't really have a, a good informed view on that but um, I think those are going to be clearly very challenging issues and you, you already hear the stories about you know if you uh, if, if a if a car has to make a choice and they they're either going to have to hit one person or another and say it's two motorcyclists and one is wearing a helmet and one's not which one should they hit? Because you know, if you hit the one with the helmet, maybe they're more likely to to live. Um, but if you um, but maybe you should hit the one with without the helmet because he was sort of made that choice to not wear a helmet. Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, so, but there's all kinds of uh, there's all kinds of factors that you could that get very challenging to sort of develop through algorithms as to what's the
2: right mm-hmm. method or choice. At the same time, sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. no uh, I've also heard people talk about you know, the the nature of the trolley problem might not be as applicable as we think in this situation because when you have a vehicle that has close to 360 degree awareness and can see farther than people and theoretically is, is safer than a human driver, that split second decision that, you know, uh, is basically like a human shortcoming might become less and less of a thing. Um, and so, you know, I think there's people that would say that there's an emerging consensus that we might not even need to have serious changes to tort law, but again, it's not my area of expertise either. Yeah, uh,
1: I I think there are some tough policy decisions and thinking (laughs) about how tort law should evolve in in light of this types of technology. Um, It's just gonna be, uh, I don't know, I don't know where it's gonna gonna shake out, but I think it does, it is important to take into account I mean, most people, most experts think that uh, autonomous vehicles in the in the long run are going to dramatically decrease f- crashes and and fate, fatal crashes. But that's not going to necessarily, you know, um, be a, of comfort to the, the even if you reduce it to one person and that one person mm-hmm. dies because of uh, something that goes wrong with an autonomous vehicle, that's obviously a big issue for that one person. I'm not sure how the law will involve, but it is important to you know if you're talking about reducing fatalities you know, 90 plus percent from today, that's a, you know, th- then there should be some policy incentive to embrace
2: the technology, if, mm-hmm. if in the, the net net it's going to be a positive. And there, the, the thing that's definitely certain is that there'll be a lot of stakeholders talking about these issues. <laughs> yeah. Right,
0: we'll take one more question before we take our last audience question though. I, I want you guys to take a, a quick second and give a sales pitch for working. As an attorney um, for clients dealing with this innovative technology, or as a, a legal adjacent business partner, uh, you guys are on like the, the front end for you know really just societal you know changing technology put in a legal and legal adjacent capacity. What's it like working there, and why would you recommend to students uh, working in that
2: role?
1: Oh, I think it's it's actually extremely exciting, and I would I would strongly recommend or. I mean, you have to, there's all kinds of things you could be getting into, but, you know, being, um, te- technological developments are going to have a major impact on on the way the law evolves as well. And um, sort of being, working having the pleasure and the honor, I guess, to, to work in that space to some extent is is um, exciting and um, I would always be but uh, I mean I'm thinking outside of autonomous there's I'm sure there's many many different examples of where you can sort of fit into that kind of niche where you're dealing with technology moving forward and how that fits with the policy and and the law
2: Mm. and as a legal adjacent professional (laughs) we um it's been a huge pleasure um working with the 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 legal team that we have at our company um i I think a lot of the things you know that you were just talking about like it's really exciting work um and it's taking a fresh look uh or or taking a look at, at you know the the existing framework and saying okay well how do we, how do we come up with policies that are actually gonna help us achieve the objectives that we want to achieve? Um, I think it's really, yeah, it's been, it's been an incredibly exciting place to be and it's it's not changing. And transportation right now, I think is, is it's got a lot of attention um, in ways that, you know, a lot of the people that I meet who've been in transportation policy for a long time, um, Feel like it's finally their 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 turn, right, to get right. to get attention and to get uh, to have like a a chance to really shape things. And so, I think it's a it's a really exciting place. And uh, and there's always a need for really bright, creative people that want to uh, yeah to to look at the law but but be creative. I think it requires a lot of creativity, at least yeah. from our perspective. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. We a question back here. Go for it. Yeah.
4: So. You mentioned earlier. The spectrum, the uh, can you speak louder? <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned earlier the spectrum of um, semi-autonomous autonomous vehicles, and I was wondering, like, um, as this technology develops and the norms surrounding it change, like, um, how how is the legal regime? How have you noticed the legal regime responding to this shift? And also, how do we manage? Um, how, how do we Educate people who are not intimately familiar
1: with this field about the changing expectations of increasingly self-driving cars. Yeah, I mean, in terms of how things have shifted recently, I, I think the movement to semi-autonomous has happened very fast, and and um, e- even as we the movement ultimately to autonomous, I think is that when when I started working on these privacy principles with the auto industry in 2013 you know, I think everyone thought fully autonomous was, you know, 50 years off, you know, optimistically. That window keeps getting shorter, I think, in terms of how far we really are off to, to, to fully autonomous. And then the, the semi-autonomous technologies have really advanced quite dramatically um, as well. Um, I'm sorry, I think I lost sort of part of your question there, though. What was the? Uh, yeah, so I guess what I had in
4: mind was the public perception. we've noticed now that minor incidents with um, right. self driving cars uh, being tested out, there was a more high-profile Tesla law of a right. and to me it seems like part of this is that people don't quite understand how the semi-autonomous and more autonomous vehicles able to operate anymore, whereas we do have a good grasp of how more traditional vehicles work, and I was wondering how do we bridge that gap?
1: <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question. I, how you bridge the gap from sort of traditional vehicles to the autonomous vehicles is, um, uh, I think, part of it is is maybe generational in a in a sense that you know the younger people coming up, um, like you, like like Nick was talking about the trends already where people when I was in high school, like the, when you turned sixteen, you couldn't wait to get a license. Now it seems like that's not as much of an imperative, and you're more used to the mobility. Um, services that are being offered and I think you're probably going to be more inclined as a generation to be more open to the sort of autonomous technologies as they unroll. I think you're going to find, you know, older people I think are going to be a lot more wary of some of these technologies and probably, you know, so you're going to, we're going to between time where it's going to probably be a lot of people who are very skeptical, who maybe don't want anything to do with it and then I think you're gonna have younger people just be more comfortable from a technology standpoint where, where things are headed but that's just kind of my general reaction I don't know Nick if you had anything else yeah, on that
2: I, I know that as far as like what we are we're trying to build um, you know fully autonomous vehicles um, and part of part of how we're going about this right is we're we're thinking about these vehicles have to be fail safe right Um, you have to be anticipating um, you know uh, basically anticipating the improbable and 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 trying to build in mechanisms to prevent um, basically like right now for example we have two mission drivers that's how we're we're, uh, mission specialists who we're putting in vehicles now um, as opposed to just using one before we're trying to come up with like redundancies basically to overcome just basically human nature right and it, and it's that's really the thing that that is is the challenge i think for the interim period is how do you get people um how do you how do you get to a place where you can have fully autonomous when that period before that might be a little bit more difficult for for the public to grasp and they might even overestimate the technology's abilities. And and so I think it's incumbent on companies that are building these things to make sure that they're thinking about human behavior and, um, and, and really designing for the worst to try to prevent those outcomes from actually happening.
0: Well, that about wraps up the time we have. Thank you both so much for coming.